So apocalyptic literature reveals what is previously hidden from us. Okay. So it's not the reason why I'm using this, by the way, as a um, talking about how you have moments of, of awakening and moments of aha is because this goes contrary to the way sometimes people think of the apocalyptic literature as revealing something that is about to take place in the near future. <laughs> that is almost always the way the book of Revelation is interpreted. Um, and it's and that's not the way Revelation is intended to be interpreted. Um, again, we have to stay faithful to literature. That's why we're doing this genre series is because the genre will tell you a lot about how to understand what's being said. Um, but what we do as Americans is we like to take everything as we always have from other nations and other civilizations and then repurpose them for our uses because that's what human nature does. <laughs> Instead of saying, oh, curious, this is a different world. Can I learn what's, what that world is like? Instead of colonizing scripture, am I saying anything odd here? I mean, seriously, if you think about the way we think about colonizing as Americans, that's what we did. We imposed our culture on others, uh, believing we were superior. And that's what we do to scripture. We colonize scripture. We go into it and we say, this is what we want it to say or answer the questions we have rather than submitting ourselves to that environment, to that culture and asking ourselves, what is it saying? What has it always said? And then we learn something profound because what we learn is that there's a wisdom that transcends time and culture and it's the wisdom of the spirit of God. And God will not be boxed into any culture or any civilization ever. <laughs> the moment we do, we've killed God and God goes away. So the only way to actually encounter God is as you know, when you first came to this church or you first came to faith or you first came to your experience, why were you so receptive? Why were you, why did you experience God? I almost said it. it's because you were receptive, right? You experienced God because you needed to. And when you, and your need is what drove you to say, I surrender everything. I surrender my expectations. I surrender my will. And therefore that's, God says, great. I can respond to that. I can respond to that, right? And so that's the way the book of Revelation ought to be looked at in order to, for it to return to what it, its intention was, which is God's word for us today. And that is, it has something to say to us, not about the future, something that's going to happen off in the distance, but something that is happening right now. And that's the reason why in Revelation, Jesus is spoken of as the one who was, I've said this so many times, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. It's all three. And that's what the apocalypse intends to do. The apocalyptic book called Revelation, which is in Greek, apocalypsis, it is intended to reveal what happened, what is happening, and what will happen. Because all three have a consistency to it. What you've seen happen is happening again and will happen with various changes and various details that shift. But it tends to happen over and over again. So things like what happens to superpowers what happens to to uh, governments and and uh in, in, as they rise in power what happens do they become more benevolent more kind more loving more generous to its people or do they become increasingly dark at least historically that's what happens over and over and over again and that's what we see in scripture um, and so that's what we're going to look at in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is set within this world in which Rome is in power and has increased in power and become dark. 
And so have religious institutions of the day. And, uh, and so that's what Paul is dealing, or excuse me, John, uh, the, the author of the book of, uh, of Revelation is dealing with. So let's look at uh, Revelation chapter 11. And there it is. We're going to look at the uh, most of that chapter. Starting at verse one, um, this is the two witnesses, and this is set between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. So uh, the way that the judgments work in this section of Revelation is you'll have six judgments and then a pause. It's called the an interlude, and there's stuff that's that John is saying, and then the seventh comes. Right, so it's like da 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 right through to six, and then pause, big pause, lots of explanation boom, the seventh. But why? Because seventh is the idea of completion. It's the idea of finally bringing something to a head. And that's what's happening uh, here over and over again. And so this is the interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet is what's happening uh, in this moment. And this is the, the two witnesses. So I was given a reed like a measuring rod and told, go measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. I'm going to pause after each, because this is so convoluted and confusing. Most of us wouldn't naturally understand this. You wouldn't understand it even if you were trying to read a commentary along with it. It is very dense. The whole thing of measuring is a common um, metaphorical tool. Okay, so it's used throughout scripture, the idea of measuring. You'll see it in Ezekiel. See it in Daniel, uh, and the idea of measuring is something is about to happen when this metaphor is used. When the prophet says God's measuring, it's measuring to do two things. One, it's to protect and set aside a group of people that God is saying these are faithful, and I'm going to protect them. By the way, protection does not mean protection from death or suffering, because they do end up suffering, and they do end up dying oftentimes. So we'll get to that in a moment. But there's a sort of protection that God says, I'm putting my, my protection on them. And then the other kind of measuring is, and these are the people that are going to get judged. <laughs> so that's the kind of tool that's being used here. All right. So um, that's, this is the, here we go, right? And this is perfect. Of course, it fits very well within this section of trumpets because trumpets are judgments. And there's the judgment that God is about to bring. Now on who, right? That's the question. Uh, and then he goes on to say, uh, but the outer court do not, do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample in the holy city for 42 months, which is three and a half years. I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days, three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. Okay, so here's where two witnesses has oftentimes been used by certain, I won't mention the names of these people, but have used them to speak about the future coming of two witnesses, two people that will come and perform all these miracles and so forth, right? Let Revelation tell us who the two witnesses are. It's rather simple. The two witnesses are, um, he says here, uh, the two witnesses are the olive trees, right? They are two They are two olive trees and two lampstands. What does two plus two make? So why would there only be two witnesses, right? If you read it, it that's what it says here. And I will point two witnesses and they will prophesy for this length of time. They are two olive trees and two lampstands. Right away, you know that the numbers are not, they're not meant to be taken in a literal wooden form. They're meant to be speaking of something else. Who are the lampstands? John has already told us who the lampstands are in chapter one. 
He says the two lamp, the lampstands are the churches. Right? So why do we need to go digging? Not you. You don't do that. None of you do. But <laughs> this is like out there. Go digging to say, oh, it must be these two characters that are going to emerge in the future and come down and do all these things uh, on the world. Um, so they are two olive trees, he says, and two lampstands. Two olive trees. What do the olive trees represent? What nation? Israel. Right? That's, it's pretty straightforward there. Lampstands, John's already said, represents the church. So what is he saying? He's saying, and he'll say this over and over again in Revelation. Who are the 144,000 that he pictures being gathered in heaven? What's 144? It's 12,000 times 12,000. How many tribes? 12,000 and 12,000 are 12,000 are the tribes of Israel. 12,000 are the tribes of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. In other words, it's a symbolic number to say the fullness of Jews and the fullness of non-Jews. In other words, all people that Christ is redeeming every single tribe, nation, tongue in heaven and on earth to come fully into the knowing of who God is, right? Into relationship with God. And so here again, he's saying, this is the picture of that. Now, why two witnesses? Because the tradition in, ancient, in the ancient world is that any matter, legal matter, had to be established by how many witnesses? Two. So that's the reason why in this context, it would make sense. Two witnesses, symbolic, right? Two witnesses. And they are testifying to something. What is that? We'll look at that in a second. So first of all, the measuring is God's people setting aside and protecting, but not from death or from suffering. And then the people that are going into judgment. Okay. But again, this is, this, we're gonna, we're, there's a lot more to be said, and I won't get into all of that uh, today in terms of what that judgment is. All right, so uh, these, they are the two olive trees, two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes down, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Okay, interesting, right? Fire, fire in the Old Testament has two things. One is its judgment, and the other one is it's accepting the sacrifice. So when God's fire would come down, it was the acceptance of that sacrifice. So it used in two different forms. Fascinating that this story is set right up against chapter 12, which is the woman and the dragon. The woman gives birth and the dragon tries to consume the child, right? What comes out of the mouth of the dragon? You would expect fire, correct? Right, anybody? Right. Dragons spew fire? It doesn't, it spews water. Bizarre, right? That's, the, that's, that's what's so bizarre about all of this. Why fire comes out of humans, and water comes out of dragons, and a sword comes out of the mouth of Jesus. So this is, this is all meant to be, to be understood as there is a message being conveyed here. One is that the words that are coming out of the mouths of the witnesses are judging those people who are judging them. Their testimony, not their judgment of people, but their testimony. That's what's going on here. These two witnesses their testimony, the reason why they're called witnesses is because their life itself, the way they live, is consistent with their words. Their words and their actions have a continuity to it. And their example and their life is absolutely beautiful and wonderful and loving and good. And it is causing those who are unjust to get angry. 
and that their words that are pouring from their mouth, their, their, their testimony, their message is consistent with their actions. And whenever that happens, you don't need to judge people. It's when you live your life, it becomes a judgment to those who are not walking in integrity and those who are not wanting to walk in integrity. It's an invitation to many to come and walk in integrity, but to others who refuse, meaning those in positions of power who have vested reason for why they don't want the world to change. They like having all the power. They like having, uh, they don't, they've lost their soul. They have begun to uh, use their power to keep themselves in power and other people in positions of, um, of struggle and of dependency on them. And so when you, can you imagine, can you imagine a people who are beginning to follow uh, Christ in the early days who start to give to the poor and start to preach to them a message of hope? What do you think the powers in position, those in position of power are feeling? Absolute envy and hatred and fear. Why? Because it's best to keep these people thinking that they need to serve the empire and the system and to be dependent on it, not to have their own independent thoughts, not to think free for themselves. It is good for them. They want this to maintain that. And now these people are getting food and they're not dependent on the system as much anymore. They are getting food from, the, from these followers of Jesus and they're getting love and they're getting nurture. And suddenly they start feeling okay about themselves and they start having an opinion and they start speaking up and they start being so dependent on the system, the religious institutional systems and the political systems. The two, by the way, that are judged in the book of Revelation, the political and religious institutions. Those are the two, those are the two that get judged throughout the book of Revelation. And so um, their, their witness is one of, hey, uh, we're going to continue to speak about a person who has freed us, someone who has done something that has been more like God than anyone else, and that's the person of Jesus, and we're going to live like him. And that becomes a terrifying message to those people who are in power. So let's go on. Um, so this is how anyone, um, so if anyone tries to harm them, so this is verse five, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain. That's an allusion to Elijah during the time of their prophesying and they have power to turn the waters into blood. That's an allusion to who? Moses. Uh, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, obviously that's not true. The church has never had that power ever. None of the people that ever followed God had that kind of power. But what is he saying is he's saying, again, metaphorically, symbolically, those who follow God will have an effect, a powerful effect on the world. And oftentimes, what they, their own lives become a judgment to the world around them, and the world around them begins to feel their consequences of their own sin, their own darkness, their own willingness to avoid um, you know, to avoid the truth, to hide the truth. And so when the church lives as it should, what happens is it becomes a judgment to those around them. Um, so after that, uh, three and a half days, uh, but after that, after the, oh, wait, I skipped a verse 10. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them. Okay, let's go back, 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 verse seven. Um, 
Okay, so now they finish their testimony. The beast comes out of the abyss to attack them and will overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, right? Sodom was a place of utter violence and uh, Egypt was as well. So these are two that represent violence and uh, evil in the way they treated people. Um, and so um, he says where also their Lord was crucified. So it's representative of Rome. It's representative also of uh, Israel in a sense, but more of the institution, the religious institution. For three and a half days, some from, uh, some from every people, tribe, nation, language will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath, now notice again, three and a half years, three and a half days, right? There's a, a similarity to those, there's a parallel to those. After three and a half days, breath of the life of God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck, struck those who saw them. They heard from a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud where their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Okay, so um, a tenth of the city collapses, but then many, many more begin to follow God. And that's the story of Revelation. Revelation starts to turn at this point and starts to aim towards fewer people are saying no, and more people are saying yes to God. That's the wonderful news of how this thing moves and begins to draw um, its conclusion. And it draws its conclusion by saying this over and over again, the two witnesses, which are the church. It's the church. It's all the people that, not the institution, the people who have chosen to follow to the best of their ability have chosen to follow God. That's the church. It's not, it's not this group right here. It's a group that it's in, incalculable. We can't count it. We don't know the definitions, the contours. Only God can measure that. Notice that in verse, in that beginning part of, uh, of chapter 11. It's not anybody who's measuring it except for God. God alone knows. And those are the people that are coming in and are beginning to follow and are following God. And they are witnesses because their life, their word, their actions are all consistent with who they are. And as a result, their lives get snuffed out. And that's the part of the story. They get killed. The church would go through suffering and through very uh, big difficulties at times. But then what happens is they rise again, just like Christ rose again. Meaning that in your life, at any point in time, you will end up suffering and things will happen, even though you've done the right thing. We'd like to believe that the protection of God means that if I do everything right, that I will be okay. And I want to parallel this to what's happening in our current lives here as individuals and also as Vine 39. As we have done the best that we knew and tried to be consistent in all of us here, I believe, that are sitting here today have tried our best that our word and our lives would have consistency. It's not, it's not perfect. None of us are. But we've tried to have those two things be consistent. And in our actions, in dealing with 
this town and trying to get a church established and trying to grow a church and trying to do all the things that we had, the dreams that we had. All of those things at this moment in the story where we are is that, yes, we have experienced a kind of death. And we're in that period of that three and a half days, you know, three and a half years. For us, it's been four. I hope God's counting. <laughs> um, so that's this period of time that we, we have been in. And I love the three and a half because three and a half is a terrible number. It's not a whole number, right? So in much, in some uh, parts of the, the world, um, uh, whole numbers were viewed to be more godly. <laughs> it, it's odd. It, the, 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 the whole numbers were the, that was, that was the, uh, the music of the universe. Um, three and a half is an odd number. Three, it makes sense, the Trinity. Three, the law of three. You see that consistently throughout the scriptures. Same thing with the number of seven, completion. You even seen the number four. The number four is the, is the totality of all living things. That's what the number four represents. The totality of all living things, plants, animals, humans. Four corners of the earth, right? That idea. But three and a half means something went wrong. That's what it means. Something went wrong. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to create a sense of this is not right. This is not right. And I love the fact that the story here is that, yes, you will experience those three and a half days, those three and a half years. We love to tell ourselves in the old way of thinking about um, the book of Revelation, is there a rapture coming and we're just going to escape the suffering? It's convenient, isn't it? There's no rapture. It's not a biblical concept. It's only 200 years old. It was never held by the church. It became popular because of an individual who decided to write about it and put it in a book and put it into the Schofield Bible and therefore, blah, 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 you know, went on and on and on. It's actually not consistent with any, this, most scholars, of, most scholars who've devoted their entire lives to the scriptures and to the word of God say that is the worst interpretation of Revelation. There are many others and they compete and they debate and they never, none of them agree, but they say that one is definitely out because it doesn't fit with anything else in scripture. The church has never, ever escaped difficulty, never. And it won't now, and we won't now, and we're going through it right now. And I wanna honor our story. I don't want it to be about like, no, we did something wrong. Otherwise God would have protected us and we would have escaped from this. No, no, you have to follow Christ to the best of your ability. And you have to make mistakes and you have to stumble. And you have to go through those three and a half days, those three and a half years, and you have to experience an incomplete and a difficult time, period of time. But in that, my friends, it is the word of our testimony. And this is what's beautiful about Revelation. It says it over and over again. They overcame by the word of their testimony and the blood of the lamb, meaning that just like Christ died, and in his death, he overcame, not by destroying others. You don't win by defeating another. That is not the message of Revelation. You win because something else changes within you. You are transformed. You see differently. You have an apocalypse. You see what is really going on. 
and you change, and in that sense, you overcome. And the words of our testimony and the actions of our lives become a judgment to those who choose to be dark and choose to fight against the work of God. But at the same time, it becomes a redemption and a message of redemption to so many, which is why this chapter finishes with a tenth of the city fell, yes, but 90% became followers. 90% saw it and their lives were changed. And so even if we're in the midst of right now a painful part of the story, our witness, our witness, if we continue, our witness becomes a light. Unless the seed dies, it cannot become anything. It cannot become fruitful. It cannot become a tree. Right? It cannot become a plant that grows like the kingdom of God and covers the face of the earth. And so we have periods like that. And so this is a messy time because we don't have all the answers. But what I am starting to intimate, and again, I was sharing this with Jim this morning. I don't, I don't have any sense of like grand message or meaning to this season. What I do have is a, 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 I'm glimpsing at something. I'm not sure what I'm glimpsing at fully yet but I'm glimpsing at something. And what I feel like I'm glimpsing at is in this moment right now, can I choose joy? Can I choose to live my life in this moment? Not outcome-based, like, well, the outcome is clearer, right? Because we're having, we had to sell our building, the outcome. We can live outcome-based and see this as um, a loss and a failure. And, um, and that's what it feels like here. It feels like that. I feel that. But I also know a different story that's emerging within me, and that is that I can't be outcome-based in that sense. I can be in other ways, I'm sure, but I can't be in this way. What I have to do is look at this as, but in this moment, what am I celebrating? What is good? What is happening in this moment that is good? What's emerging? What's being birthed in us? And that's why this story is set up against chapter 12, which is the woman and the dragon. The woman gives birth to a child. This child is like, it represents both Jesus, but it also represents dreams. It represents um, a vision. It's something that's born, that's being birthed within us, something new, hope, right? You know hope, what that feels like inside when that's being birthed in you. And what waits as soon as she's giving birth? What waits on the other side is the dragon that wants to swallow that up, wants to destroy that. And that's what this book is, that's what this chapter is set up against is there's something being birthed in you. Even in the midst of this period of time, there's something being birthed in you. And can you tune into that which is being birthed? Can you tune into what God is doing in you in the midst? It's not like, right, you know, we, we go through the period of pain and then it ends and then something new begins. No, something new begins while you're going through the difficulty. What is that that's being birthed in you? And that's what gets protected. No matter what the dragon tries to do to swallow that thing up, it, can't, it doesn't work. I love the part where the dragon spews water out and the earth itself opens up to take that water in. It's as if all things, nature included, 
stands there in protection of the thing that is being birthed within you. And so that's the question that I've been wrestling with and trying to work through is what is, and I see it, I see what's being birthed in me, but at times I lose it too, because the pain can be so hard that at times I just end up in the darkness. And then at other times I'm back in the, in that place of, Oh, that's what's being birthed in me. That's not in the place of, Oh no, there's something new coming. It's not if then like, Oh no, there's something in the future. No, no. What's happening. Right. Oh, I feel it. Right. I feel it. There it is. And then again, goes away the next day, it comes back. You know what I mean? That's how it works. So I just wanted to share some of these thoughts from the book of Revelation as an apocalypse. And um, yeah, see if we can see what's hidden sometimes from our eyes and ask spirit to do that. Just open our eyes to see what's being created in us in the midst of this.